You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protest, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. As always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Our podcast today is an explainer on the recent executive order that subjects the International Criminal Court, or ICC, to economic sanctions. We teased this issue on our July 2nd News Roundup podcast, and here's our deep dive. We'll kick it off with some basic background on the law. First, we'll talk about the International Criminal Court, review some sanctions law, and talk about the, what is called IEPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. Then we'll shift to present day and discuss President Trump's executive order, where it came from, what it means, and whether this is an extraordinary use of IEPA. And lastly, we'll cover the ways that others are trying to challenge this use of IEPA. We've got a packed agenda, so let's get this party started. To help us sort through this complicated topic, we're excited to welcome Brian Egan. Brian is currently a park partner at Steptoe and Johnson, and he's also one of our first guests when we're just an itty-bitty baby podcast making our way in the world. What makes him an ideal guest for today's discussion is his past role as the legal advisor to the State Department, also known as State L, responsible for, among other things, litigation before the ICC. Plus, he was the Assistant General Counsel for Enforcement and Intelligence at the Department of Treasury, where he worked on sanctions matters. His bio is super long and impressive, as you can imagine, so we'll attach it to the notes. Brian, we're so glad you can't agree to come in, since you are clearly the perfect lawyer to help us understand all that's happened here. Thanks so much for having me, Yvette. It's great to be here. Thank you again, Brian. And before we get too far into all of the nuances of our current situation, could we set out the basics? Can you recap what the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court are? Uh, so just basically, what's the ICC? Why was it created? Well, the ICC is literally an international criminal court, um, and it was created by uh, many of the countries in the world to address the world's most serious crimes, uh, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and what's known as the crime of aggression. It was created almost 20 years ago now in 2002 through an international treaty that is known as the Rome Statute. And while there are over 120 countries who are states party to this treaty, members of the ICC, and therefore have agreed to be subject to the jurisdiction of the ICC, uh, the United States notably is not one of those countries. Uh, and so what is meant by the phrase war crimes and crimes against humanity? There's a definition of those words in the Rome Statute, but is that a shared international legal definition, something that we would all understand to mean the same thing? Uh, more or less, I think the, you're right, uh, Nicole, that there are uh, definitions in the Rome Statute. These were hotly negotiated, including by the United States at the time the Rome Statute was created. So let's take those terms one at a time. First, war crimes, uh, that's a serious breach of international law in the context of a, a war, an armed conflict. So in other words, there must be a war for there to be a war crime, of course. Uh, what is a serious breach of law is the, is the question. And that's one of the questions that the parties to the ICC 
debated before signing the Rome Treaty. And if you look at the statute, the Rome Statute, there are literally dozens of examples in the treaty of what the parties to the ICC have agreed are war crimes that can be prosecuted uh, through the ICC. Uh, for example, the willful killing of a protected person like a civilian or a prisoner of war would be a war crime that would be potentially subject to prosecution by the ICC. Uh, crimes against humanity, the other term that you mentioned, Nicole, that's another one of the other four crimes uh, that are uh, subject to the ICC's jurisdiction. And a crime against humanity is defined in the statute as a serious depravity of life or liberty that's directed against a, a specific human population. Uh, so uh, think about a specific uh, ethnic group, a specific group of civilians, a specific geographic population, uh, some widespread series of crimes directed at that population uh, could be a crime against humanity under the Rome statute and subject to prosecution by the ICC. Uh, Brian, let's give our, our listeners, that is, a sense of who's been prosecuted by the ICC for context and some of the politics behind its relationship with the United States. Sure. So the ICC has opened a, a fairly small number of investigations that could lead to prosecutions. In its history, there have been under 15 investigations. Um, and only an investigation can lead to an indictment and a prosecution by the court. Uh, so the most notable examples uh, are, uh, for example, the situation in Darfur, the Sudan, uh, the genocide that took place there has been the subject of an ICC investigation. The ICC has investigated the Lord's Resistance Army, the notorious group that was most active in Uganda and elsewhere in Central Africa. Uh, Libya under Muammar Gaddafi, uh, another uh, of the most high profile examples. And in terms of actual prosecutions, uh, Muammar Gaddafi was being prosecuted uh, before he died, uh, but his, one of his sons was in fact uh, uh, indicted uh, and is uh, wanted for arrest by the ICC right now. Uh, Joseph Kony, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, was prosecuted by the ICC. Uh, those are a couple of the most prominent examples. Um, it is fair to say this is a pretty slow moving court. Uh, there haven't been very many cases. Um, and there has been some friction politically uh, on the ICC's agenda, if you will, with uh, some African states in particular uh, expressing concern that most of the ICC's investigations to date have focused on African countries and African leaders. And there's been some pressure on the ICC to, uh, to expand, uh, to show that it is not Africa-centric and it actually has a global focus. Well, that leads to my next question. What's the United States' relationship to the ICC? What were you doing on, on ICC cases when you were state L? And what did that, you know, what the politics in Africa, uh, what role did that play in your, um, in your business? Yeah, well, and um, I'm going to ask you the same question in a little while, Yvette. I think uh, I would describe the, <laughs> the relationship with the ICC as fraught and somewhat schizophrenic. Uh, on the one hand, the United States has always been, at least in the post-World War II era, one of the leading proponents of international accountability for notorious international crimes and war crimes. You think about the Nuremberg Tribunals. You think about uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for, uh, for Rwanda. Uh, there, are, there are examples, Yugoslavia, of uh, cases where the US has pushed for accountability uh, including international accountability. On the other hand, 
even in the beginning when the ICC was just an inception, before it was incepted, uh, the U.S. was concerned that the ICC would be used against the United States as a political tool, uh, and uh, the negotiators in the Clinton administration tried to negotiate carve-outs for U.S. personnel for that reason, for example. Uh, in the Bush administration, there was uh, extreme resistance to the ICC, particularly in the first term, uh, and, uh, but, that, but that eventually changed, where the Bush administration actually supported uh, or at least did not block the ICC's investigation into Darfur uh, beginning in 2005-2006. Um, the Obama administration uh, tried to take a different uh, tack on the ICC. Uh, they actually publicly acknowledged that the ICC had an important role to play in ensuring international criminal accountability. And even the Obama folks tried to support the ICC wherever possible, uh, where consistent with the law. Uh, so cooperation on uh, gathering facts where possible, giving the ICC access to information where the, where the U.S. could, uh, was part of the Obama administration's strategy. All the while, uh, still being concerned that the ICC could be used in a way that was seen as inappropriate by the U.S. government uh, against U.S. forces and U.S. personnel. Yeah, so um, just a, a quick follow-up. That's kind of setting the ground for um, what uh, our, our topic is going to be today. But can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the background on what the current prosecutor, Fatih bin Suda, has done uh, to investigate uh, crimes, uh, war, alleged war crimes uh, during the global war on terror in Afghanistan? Sure, yeah. So uh, the, the current ICC prosecutor, the ICC prosecution began uh, what's known as a preliminary investigation into situation in Afghanistan uh, over a decade ago at this point. I believe it was in 2007. Um, and that's the, under the ICC's procedures, the first step uh, in a potential ICC pros prosecution is the opening of a preliminary investigation. Prosecutor can do this on uh, her own initiative uh, she'll gather facts, she'll look, interview witnesses, she'll interview victims, um, and if she believes that a case merits further uh, review and potential prosecutions by, by the ICC, uh, she will seek a full-fledged investigation, which requires the approval of the court itself. So beginning in 2007, uh, it was publicly known that the ICC prosecutors were conducting a preliminary investigation. And uh, from that point in time, uh, the U.S. government uh, has been working with the ICC in part to convince them that this uh, preliminary investigation was not needed, at least with respect to the actions of U.S. personnel and uh, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, so uh, that was one of the things that I spent my, some time on when I was in government in the Obama administration was uh, working on the policy um, and the processes for sharing information with the ICC to try to explain to them why we believe that an investigation of U.S. personnel related to the situation in Afghanistan was not appropriate and was not, was not necessary. Uh, and part of the argument was admissibility, right? Um, the, this Rome statute itself requires that, um, it, it, you know, jurisdiction only kicks in when a government is unwilling or unable to prosecute, right? That's, yeah, that's exactly right, Yvette. Uh, there's a principle in the Rome Statute that 
uh, is known as the complementarity principle, which is uh, the ICC is supposed to be the court of last year's uh, resort and only when the responsible states are either uh, unwilling or genuinely unable to prosecute uh, a case should the ICC come into play. And so part of uh, what the U.S. government has tried to do is to explain to the ICC why, in fact, the U.S. is uh, able and, in fact, does uh, investigate and prosecute allegations of war crimes, including in the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, so uh, there were some issues about uh, how much information can be shared with the ICC about uh, about these issues, but that was one of the key points uh, that the U.S. government's been making to the ICC for many years about this issue. Uh, the way that the the judge on the court has um, asserted jurisdiction here, though, is just because Afghanistan is a state party. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, that's a good point, Elisa, too. So the ICC has jurisdiction over crimes that are committed in the territory of states' parties to the ICC. And Afghanistan became a state party in 2003. And so, therefore, beginning in 2003, crimes subject to ICC jurisdiction that were committed in Afghanistan are potentially subject to prosecution by the ICC. Now, the U.S. has tried to object to that sometimes by saying, well, that's fine, but we, the United States, are not a party to the ICC, and therefore we object to your assertion of jurisdiction. But I think that's a pretty difficult legal argument for the U.S. government to make. I think the, the, the point that Yvette raised about complementarity is the um, kind of the more genuine objection as a legal matter. Thank you for all of that background. Uh, to focus a little bit more on some, some of the recent developments with the ICC, we are now talking about it because of an executive order discussing sanctions and visa restrictions against ICC personnel. So I'd like to shift gears and do a quick review of sanctions law. Could you tell us just briefly some of the legal basises for these tools, these sanctioning tools, and how they're typically used? Sure. So uh, sanctions are an increasingly common part of the U.S. government's national security and foreign policy toolbox. Uh, they're usually used by either the president or the Congress to address some sort of a national security or foreign policy crisis. Think about North Korea or uh, the situation in Russia and Eastern Ukraine, uh, where either the Congress or the president will impose economic restrictions on persons or governments who are believed to be responsible uh, for whatever the national security or foreign policy crisis is of the day. And to keep talking about the sanctions process, what comes after an executive order blocking an individual or entity? Yeah, so um, Nicole, as you suggested, in, in, in most cases, what the president will issue an executive order uh, relying on his statutory authority to set, uh, set up a sanctions framework. Uh, where uh, the executive order will explain why the president imposed a sanctions framework and will authorize some of his agencies, typically the Treasury Department and the State Department, to uh, Im implement the framework by imposing sanctions on particular persons or entities or agencies who meet criteria that are laid out in the uh, sanctions executive order. So it may be persons who are responsible for uh, human rights violations in North Korea, for example, would be one criteria. And 
the Treasury Department could review information and could decide which persons should be sanctioned under that criteria. So uh, national security law superfans will remember that we have a deep dive on uh, sanctions law uh, in one of our past episodes, and we will link to that in the notes. Brian, can you briefly explain AIPA and give us some examples of national emergencies that presidents have declared with relationship to that law? Yeah, so AIPA is the uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act. It was a statute that was passed by Congress in the 1970s, uh, and it delegates a broad amount of authority to the president to impose economic sanctions, very broadly defined, when the president declares a national emergency. Uh, so uh, the president has used IEPA presidents uh, beginning in the late 1970s, dozens of times uh, to impose sanctions. And uh, typically this works by the president uh, declaring an emergency in an executive order uh, and uh, addressing the emergency through sanctions. So you look at the first example of IEPA, uh, was the Iran hostage crisis where President Carter declared an emergency because U.S. personnel in our embassy in Tehran uh, had been taken hostage and he froze the assets of the Iranian government in the United States in response. That's one example of an emergency that was led to economic sanctions uh, and there are many others of course. All right, and those are, that, that's an interesting history. Let's just add that in the past, sanctions, when you were speaking of individuals have been brought by like leaders, terror leaders, Osama bin Laden, people of that uh, ilk, if you will. But um, that does bring us back to where we were in our previous podcast on the law. We appreciate that. Um, but we're, let's apply this to the current issue, and let's add, just to refresh our listeners, that there is no definition of what an economic emergency is. That is the uh, vast surface of Mars, uh, really. Um, but now we have to apply it to the current issue, uh, which is the president's June 11th executive order blocking property of certain persons associated with the International Criminal Court. What on earth is in the CO, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> I love that description of national emergencies, Lisa. That's, that's true. It's really in the eyes of the beholder, the beholder being the president of the United States, who uh, has all the cards, some would say, in declaring a national emergency. Uh, that does bring us to this executive order. So Executive Order 13928, uh, which was issued on June 11th by the president, uh, declares a national emergency under IEPA, as we've been talking about, with respect to uh, the situation of the ICC and its illegitimate assertion of jurisdiction over U.S. personnel and personnel of certain U.S. allies. So this executive order, if you read it, has about a paragraph, a lengthy paragraph, explaining why the president believes that this is a national emergency, and it then uh, implements a sanctions regime, uh, directs the Secretary of the Treasury and State and the Attorney General to impose sanctions in response to this national emergency. And the president says the national emergency is that the ICC has gone forward with this uh, investigation uh, that was in a preliminary stage for many, many years. Uh, just a few months ago, it advanced uh, beyond the preliminary stage. It was the ICC court itself authorized the prosecutor to proceed to a full-fledged investigation. And that is the precipitating event, as I understand it, for this executive order. So, but let's talk about this didn't happen. There, this, this 
this followed some sort of slow burn, all right? Brian and Yvette, um, I'm asking Yvette because you have some expertise in this area too. Um, how long has the ICC been sort of fuming, if you will, and preparing to target U.S. actions in Afghanistan? I mean, is this some new response from a body that has decided it doesn't like President Trump in particular? Or is this something that really goes back maybe decades? Well, uh, I'll jump in here a little bit. Um, so I think this is getting back to the um, earlier uh, laydown that Brian you know, touched upon uh, in, in some of the politics in, involving African countries, right? Uh, it, because this is, you know, a, a part of the UN, all these international politics were at play um, during a lot of these investigations and there was some mounting frustration uh, that all of the investigations appear to be in African countries. The, there's also been a lot of, of pressure on the United States because, you know, frankly, from an outside view is that we've tried to have it both ways, right? We've had our foot in the door, we support the court, we're generally against atrocities, we, you know, we've, we've taken a hard stance against genocidaires, we've, you know, um, push them out uh, to the extent that our law um, allows, uh, you know, for, for um, immigration violations and, and the like. Um, but, but yet we have not um, acceded to the jurisdiction of the court, you know, because of all of these politics. And um, it, it, there has been a lot of frustration in the international community on, you know, our, our will they or won't they approach to the court. And, and it, it changes, it waxes and wanes with each, each administration. But, you know, on both sides, Democrat and Republican, there have always been, there's always been a little bit of hesitation to go full bore into joining the ICC for the, for the political reasons uh, that we've uh, discussed. And I, I think um, part of the, like Brian was talking about with complementarity, part of the resistance is that, you know, the, we do have a robust mechanism to prosecute war crimes. Soldiers, uh, servicemen, uh, uh, airmen and Marines that are allegedly commit war crimes have been prosecuted in the past under the Uniform Code of Military Justice or UCMJ. Um, we, we do uh, put, put people away for uh, committing alleged war crimes. Uh, and so there is a, a, a strong just, just thread in the United States that we do believe in the rule of law. So, you know, our two arguments that we're not state's party and that we do have a strong military justice system are, are what we've used for uh, since the since the Rome statute um, was first uh, you know put out there to be signed that we would support the rule of law and we didn't need to have um, you know our our uh, service members subject to uh, an international criminal court I would just add Yvette I mean I totally agree with everything Yvette said and one reason that we've tried to distinguish ourselves, uh, as, as I've understood it, is uh, because we have had a unique role as one of the world's international peacekeepers and policemen. Uh, that was one of the arguments that was made by the negotiators from the U.S. side, that we should, uh, there should be some more leeway for the United States because of our willingness to engage and to intervene in various situations. Um, you know, I'm not sure as a factual matter uh, that, you know, you pushing that too far, you know, I'm not sure empirically that that plays out exactly as, uh, as it sounds. 
Um, but there is something to be said that we have found ourselves involved in many, many situations around the world. And therefore, uh, that, that's another argument that we've, we've, we've tried to deploy. Um, let me offer a factual assertion because quite frankly, um, in social media, um, there have been a lot of sort of rumors flying around about what motivated this. Um, but, and, and I want you to shoot it down, but here would be the factual assertion that is sort of in the wild, which is that individuals in the U.S. military or any military operating in a theater of war will sometimes violate international standards, but uh, we do prosecute our military servicemen in courts, and we have prosecuted many of those people. So I would argue this shows that we're subject to and use the rule of law, and that if ICC is a court of last resort, um, that this action really sort of exceeds their original remit. Um, I, I, would, I would say, you know, just because we're lawyers and we play both sides of the argument, I would say that, you know, the president's recent pardon of people that were convicted of war crimes really undermines our argument with the ICC that we are willing to, um, you know, hold our own service members accountable when they do violate uh, the inter, you know international standards and our own UCMJ. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, we do have a lot of good arguments to make, as Yvette has said about uh, the, our military justice system holding service members accountable when they commit war crimes. Um, I don't think it was helpful the the president's recent recent actions. I agree, and there's also the issue of the. Um, the intelligence-based operations by the United States that were, you know, made public in the Senate uh, Select Committee's report, uh, which, you know, have been the subject of a lot of review in the United States and a lot of criticism, um, but not a lot of prosecutions. And I think the, uh, the uh, work done by the uh, special investigator John Durham early in the Obama administration, which was Noteworthy, he was asked to review a number of cases, but uh, those cases didn't end up leading to prosecutions is another thing that people who are skeptical of the U.S. view of complementarity point to and say, yeah, you didn't, when the dust settled, though, even in that cir circumstance, you didn't prosecute anyone. Uh, I think that's another quiver uh, that people use when they want to uh, argue that our complementarity record isn't really uh, all that great. Excuse me, just as they let's break this down for a second. What you're talking about in incredibly diplomatic and amazing terms, Brian, um, is you're talking about black sites. Uh, you're talking about the allegations that um, CIA operatives conducted um, torture and, and other crimes. And Mr. Durham investigated those um, in the throes of which, to refresh our, our listeners' memory, um, there was an admission that the tapes of some of those interrogations had been destroyed and evidence had been destroyed by uh, the CIA. And so um, one looking from the outside might, uh, if they didn't know our vast scheme and viewed that in perhaps isolation, not to minimize anything that occurred, which you cannot, mm -hmm. um, then that could look like a vacuum or a, a, a big failure of the rule of law. I'm sorry, Yvette, go ahead. No, I was just about to refer us back to our podcast with John Rizzo um, that, you know, discusses a lot of these inter <laughs> internal domestic politics that, that led to, 
you know, why those tapes were destroyed, right? I think it really gets to the point that um, international law is immensely complicated. Not only do you have, um, you know, the interaction between and among the states parties to the treaty, to the treaties, those who are not states party, um, uh, the, the Rome statute, but also um, the, the domestic politics that are at play or work at any of these uh, given decisions, right? The charging decisions, whether or not to charge somebody with war crimes specifically is a very complicated debate um, when you're when you're deciding um, uh, to court-martial somebody uh, who is, who is uh, accused of war crimes, right? Typically, it's just easier to prosecute somebody for an ordinary crime like murder. There's much more uh, case law built up about it. Prosecutors are much more comfortable um, with, with those kinds of ordinary crimes. There's just not as much experience um, on the uniform side and, frankly, on the, um, on the DOJ side when we're talking about contractors and things like that with prosecuting people for war crimes. It's just easier to prosecute them for ordinary crimes. Politically, that's challenging because you can't po point to a long and storied career or history of prosecuting people for war crimes, even when your intention is to punish people um, who have committed atrocities uh, on the international scale. It just makes things hugely complicated. So now that we have a better understanding of those complicated tensions between the U.S. and the ICC, I'd like to focus back on this particular response here from the president's recent executive order. Uh, is this an appropriate response or is it an unusual use of the sanctions power? And if so, what makes it different from past uses of sanctions? I think this is a highly unusual use of sanctions. And in my view, it's clearly not an appropriate use of the sanctions power by the president. Um, if you compare this situation to the other sanctions we have on the books, which are sanctions against terrorists and weapons proliferators and uh, international criminals and Iran and North Korea, and the list goes on. Uh, this use of sanctions really stands out as uh, sanctions against those who are really supporting the efforts that uh, we're in using sanctions against in other contexts. So uh, it, it, it really makes no sense to me uh, to use the sanctions tool in, in this context. All right, if Congress were to decide this use of sanctions will ultimately undermine the entire sanctions regime and herald in an area which, by the way, you presaged, uh, Brian, in your last podcast, uh, where the president really can no longer weaponize the dollar and um, that, you know, this could have catastrophic, serious consequences. Uh, what is Congress empowered to do? So under the... Uh, a law called the National Emergencies Act, when the president uses his emergency authorities, as he did under IEPA in this ICC executive order, Congress can pass a joint resolution disapproving of the use of emergency authorities and thereby terminating the national emergency. Uh, this has uh, never been done. It was almost done in the context of one of the president's uh, executive orders related to the border wall with Mexico, uh, where for the first time both both houses of the Congress voted to disapprove the president's use of emergency authorities. He, of course, vetoed that resolution, and the Congress was unable to uh, overcome the veto. Uh, but uh, the the Congress theoretically could try to stop 
the president from using IEPA against the ICC in this way. So the executive order also talks about uh, implications for our allies. Are we talking about our NATO allies? If so, why? And to make it into a compound question, have any of them submitted to the jurisdiction of the ICC? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Yvette. And I'd be interested in your view on this question as well here, actually. Uh, yeah, so there are a couple of different groups of allies, I think, that NATO allies are relevant because the U.S. Uh, participation in, in Afghanistan was for many years part of a, a coalition of forces under the NATO umbrella, uh, which was led by the United States. Uh, so it wasn't just U.S. forces in Afghanistan, but it was Canadian forces and British forces and, and forces from many other NATO partner countries uh, who could potentially be part of this uh, ICC investigation. Um, now, the your second part of your question is interesting because uh, almost every other NATO member state has actually submitted to the ICC's jurisdiction. So in addition to Afghanistan itself, the site of these activities being uh, Afghanistan having decided to submit to jurisdiction, most other NATO countries have submitted to the ICC's jurisdiction. So it's, it's not entirely clear uh, why they would um, object to an investigation going forward, at least from a jurisdictional perspective. That there's also the issue, of course, of the, the black sites uh, that uh, Elisa mentioned a few moments ago uh, in, in Europe and potentially elsewhere, uh, to the extent the ICC's investigation goes to those t uh, countries as well, uh, and those countries are, are U.S. allies, uh, whether they may have an objection uh, to the ICC's assertion of jurisdiction. And most of those countries uh, are also uh, uh, parties to the ICC statute, the Rome statute. Yeah, it's, it's, really, um, it's, it's really unclear how this is all gonna shake out. Um, I think that at the very least we can say that um, I imagine, so, you know, it's been, it's been a, a while since I've, I've been in government myself, but I imagine it is more challenging to get cooperation from our allies to do these kind of, uh, you know, deep, deep uh, in, intelligence missions where, we're, you know, we're holding um, uh, uh, captives, we're trying to interrogate them and, and extract intelligence value, where we, we're bifurcating the uh, law of war paradigm and like how you prosecute prisoners versus the criminal law uh, paradigm, which is completely different. Um, it, it, it makes a lot of these operations, I imagine, um, much more difficult to uh, negotiate and to convince uh, cooperation from, from um, those partners. Especially when there are instances such as um, recently President Trump announced he was moving thousands of U.S. military personnel out of Germany, where the U.S. has had a major presence supporting NATO since the end of World War I, uh, to Poland, which happens to be a country that has submitted to ICC jurisdiction. Uh, it's not clear that this was in any way intended to counter the ICC, but could it? I, um, I, I, don't, I don't really think so. Um, I think that this move was probably motivated by other policy factors, but not necessarily uh, the, the, IC, the U.S. concerns with the ICC. As you said, Nicole, Poland is, is also a party to the ICC. Uh, to the Rome statute, uh, as is as is Germany. So I don't think that the change from one to the other 
was uh, would would make a difference for the U.S. personnel uh, involved uh, in uh, on the ground over there. Uh, might it have more to do with uh, some more affinity, uh, a closer affinity with the Polish government, which is more right wing, versus the German government, which is uh, more left wing? Hard, hard to say exactly what's motivating this change. So to me, at least, you know, um, it might be an uh, objection to Germany's refusal to pay what the U.S. believes it should be paying in terms of its NATO contribution. Uh, it may be uh, a U.S. Uh, aversion to Germany right now. Uh, you know, that just I, I think that that President Trump uh, seems to uh, not be the biggest fan of Germany in particular. Uh, it's it's really unclear to me why the U.S. is thinking maybe this is a Russia play. Some have said that this you know is going to bring our troops closer to Russia, and therefore it's actually getting tough on Russia. Um, really, like many things uh, in our government right now, it's really hard to say because it's, it hasn't really been clearly explained the, the the theory of the case. We have talked about the movement of troops. Um, you know, from Germany to Poland, I think the sort of larger question, it gets back to the black sites again. And, um, you know, the president has publicly stated that this is a reaction to Russia because of the um, pipeline uh, that would bring Russian oil into Germany. And I would say, you know, at least Russia's a little more proximate and uh, Germany is a, um, a natural gas, certainly dependent uh, country. People can't turn their stoves on there if they're not receiving um, that. So in any event, let's talk about um, these black sites because Poland is, are they a signator member? Because um, they did host the black sites as it has now been publicly reported. Are, are they vulnerable in, in light of this investigation? Yes, Pol Poland is a member of the Rome Statute. Uh, so um, they've submitted to the jurisdiction of the ICC. Um, I think that they, it's possible that the ICC's investigation could uh, include uh, events that took place in Poland that are connected to the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, so to that extent, I think there, there's a vulnerability possible, possible there. Um, I don't think that that has um, a connection to our troops who are currently being moved uh, from Germany to Poland. I think this is more uh, a um, an issue related to the activities that took place in Poland uh, several years ago now at this point. But regardless of what conspiracy uh, theory you like, uh, the question remains, are there legal tools or processes that could have been used here to counter the ICC short of declaring sanctions? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, this seems like a classic issue that uh, was one that should have, could have and should have been subject to uh, first of all, continued diplomacy uh, discussions with the ICC and its prosecutor themselves, uh, where the U.S. government uh, had the ability to and uh, can continue to share information explaining why uh, we object to this assertion of jurisdiction by the, uh, by the ICC. Um, you, you know, th there are other steps that we could take to support the court's work in other matters, manners that uh, could also serve to take down the temperature on, on this particular issue. Uh, sharing information about the, uh, the work that's been done by the United States to bring uh, criminals uh, into account uh, is another area where I think uh, we could do more to uh, work with the, with the court and against this investigation, frankly. 
some of those things could still be done, of course, but uh, sanctions, it seems to me, kind of the, the, has uh, focused the dialogue on an issue that's really tangential to, to our concerns and tangential to what the ICC is trying to do. And um, I, I would also, you know, ask, just as a practical matter, um, let's just say, I mean, because I'm, I'm aware that we've been sharing information with the ICC and we've, we've had an open, you know, dialogue with them for, for many years, specifically on our activity, the U.S.'s activity during the global war on terror. So it's not as if the, um, the ICC has been operating in the dark without a flashlight as far as our activities go. Um, but uh, I, I would just say as a matter, as a practical matter, what's the likelihood that if the ICC were to, you know, ratchet up its activity uh, in response to these sanctions and demand that we present, you know, X, Y, and Z service member before them, um, the likelihood of us cooperating with that, for example. Yeah, that's that's never been very high likelihood, uh, regardless of the administration, uh, and I think it's clearly not likely uh, now. Uh, you're 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 right about that, Yvette. All right, but there has been some backlash. Something like this that's new, uh, highly controversial. As you can expect, there are uh, professional organizations, in particular the American Bar Association's uh, president, Judy Perry Martinez, the ABA Center for uh, Human Rights. Numerous legal scholars and international lawyers has, have responded to this with, frankly, dismay and uh, outrage. Um, what are their objections to this newest executive order? Well, I, I, I think that they see this as an attack on a, an institution that uh, we should be supporting as lawyers and as proponents of the rule of law. Even if it's a flawed institution, uh, the idea that we are using uh, a, a coercive tool like economic sanctions against the uh, the people who work for this institution that really champions a cause that's really important to the United States, uh, I think is seen as as deeply concerning and and a threat to the rule of law. Uh, the idea that lawyers, for example, who are working for or with the ICC could potentially be subject to economic sanctions because of their work in, in representing individuals or in sharing evidence with the ICC, um, I think it's just really uh, uh, contrary to a lot of what we believe when we think about uh, a system that's based on the rule of law. And speaking of rule of law, we discussed earlier some of the reasons why uh, some folks might question the U.S.'s commitment to prosecuting war crimes, but would it be fair to see, say that there has been a failure of the rule of law that emerged when the U.S. did not court-martial our servicemen under some of those specific instances we discussed earlier? My view, Nicole, is, is no, uh, that I believe that there's no, no country is perfect in uh, accountability measures but I think it's, it would be very difficult to the say that the United States has not, first of all, tried to make transparent uh, what happened, uh, tried to prevent it from happening in the future, and actually taken action both in the military context, uh, through, through the military justice process, and also uh, through the Durham investigation, which uh, Elisa talked about a few minutes ago, uh, to uh, hold, hold uh, 
people accountable in at least some circumstances. You know, would other countries have done it differently? Of course. Would, you know, maybe would the ICC handle it differently? Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, but I don't think that's the question before the ICC. It's really, were we will, unwilling or unable uh, to hold individuals accountable themselves? And I just, I don't think the record bears that out, in, in my view, at least. Yeah, and I would, I will argue against my um, earlier point, because that's what lawyers do, um, and, and just, you know, kind of challenge the notion that um, a few pardons uh, overall, um, when we, we've had hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of service members cycle in and out the, uh, of CENTCOM just over the past decades, unfortunately, that we've been um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we have had very few um, instances of bad behavior that has gone unpunished. And you would also argue that, you know, a pardon is outside of those sort of uh, judicial, you know, remedies, right? So pardon is a, is, is after you know, someone has an appeal for clemency or an appeal for, for um, uh, lenience, uh, that there's a, that's a political response. And so it, it doesn't, necessarily mean that there's a wholesale abandonment of the rule of law such that the um, ICC should, should take over, it, take, take responsibility for um, providing accountability in, in these particular instances. Yes, and um, uh, today being a day when we're talking about pardons, uh, I think a day or two after the president has pardoned Roger Stone, but I would point out, you know, that that authority seems to be unchecked, uh, but is a part of our constitution and has been for over, at this point, almost 250 years. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming in, Brian. It's always great to have you talk about this subject, and I regret our format allows only for sort of a shorter and one-hour discussion because um, this could be one of those things that, you know, used to be a long intellectual discussion in college that went on all night and into the next day. Um, but thank you so much for coming in. And I just want to say to Yvette, thanks always. I, we don't talk about your past, but your, your, your past professional life, uh, you gained tremendous knowledge about this stuff. Um, and in my experience working with you now for over two years, you're highly sensitive uh, to these matters. You do track them. Um, and I really appreciate having your knowledge. So we'll bring you more as this uh, topic develops. I suspect it will. Um, so we hope to uh, deliver some more facts to you and more law in the coming months and probably years. And of course, we will link the executive order that we discussed today, the ICC's website, the ABA's response, the IEPA statute, which is at 50 USC 1701, and more articles on today's topic in our notes and on our website. And I'll thank you again, Brian, for coming in. Uh, as, as we've mentioned, this is a topic that's near and dear to our uh, my heart in specific. And so I'm glad that uh, we were able to cover it with you. And thank you listeners for tuning in. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times. So you continue growing your knowledge of the law. You'll hear about legal opportunities and pretty much everything that affects national security. So if you want more content like this, where we bring somebody uh, who knows as much as a person like Brian Egan does, uh, then remember, hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments uh, and feedback because we really do want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org. 
And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed, give you context on fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or your laptop screen. And don't forget, the lawyers hosting and, and appearing on this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back with more content next week. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we have to be apart. And thanks for listening to our different views. We hope they've expanded your knowledge. We'll come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.